Preventive medicine in primary care has traditionally focused on health promotion and disease prevention. Due to advances in technology, a typical well visit may now include a series of tests to detect early disease. How has this shift in preventive medicine affected patient care, survival outcomes, and healthcare costs? And how can physicians decide when to screen for cancer and other conditions? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. H. Gilbert Welch, professor of medicine and community and family medicine at Dartmouth Medical School, co-director of the VA Outcomes Group in the Department of Veterans Affairs in White River Junction, Vermont, and author of the book, Should I Be Tested for Cancer? Maybe Not, and Here's Why. Welcome, Dr. Welch. Well, thanks for, so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, we're talking about screening for early disease, and screening in primary care has almost become second nature. Is there really a problem with screening? Well, it's like everything. It's not quite as simple as it might uh, appear at first blush. Um, I think for years we've exaggerated the benefits of screening and sort of downplayed or totally ignored its harms. Now, why in the culture of medicine do physicians feel compelled to screen? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. One, there's a general enthusiasm with the uh, dictum that early diagnosis is always better than late. And of course, in many conditions, we do like to diagnose early rather than late. We'd rather diagnose a patient early in the course of their pneumonia than when they're short of breath. We'd rather repair a laceration, a deep skin laceration, soon after it's occurred rather than wait until it gets infected. But this doctrine sometimes gets extended too far. And as we move into conditions that are not bothering the patient currently, we risk involving a whole set of people that we otherwise wouldn't. And that leads to the problem of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Now, let's talk a little bit about overdiagnosis. Why don't we use prostate cancer as an example? The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recently recommended to end testing men over age 75 for prostate cancer. Is this because there was a problem of overdiagnosis, or was there something else going on? No, it really is about the concern of overdiagnosis. I guess just to step back for a second, all the physicians in the audience should recognize that so far, as of yet, we don't even know whether PSA helps anyone. My belief is it probably does help a few, but we're still waiting for randomized trials to show whether it has any effect on prostate cancer mortality or not. But as I said before, my best guess is it probably helps a few. But it leads many, many others to be diagnosed with prostate cancer who otherwise would never have been. And the effect at the population level is just dramatic. Since the introduction of PSA screening, my colleagues and I estimate that the over a million men have been diagnosed with prostate cancer who otherwise would not have. Now, these men haven't just received the diagnosis. Most of them have also been treated. And as the physicians in the audience are aware, treatment has uh, real side effects. What kind of side effects might be seen with the overtreatment that you mentioned? Well, first, we should talk about mortality. I mean, there is a mortality associated with radical prostatectomy. It's not large, but it's on the order of two per thousand, so that's still real. But then there's the symptom side effects associated with the procedure. Many men are made impotent. Many men have trouble urinating following the procedure. Either they're incontinent or they have hesitancy. And the other major therapy for prostate cancer, radiation, ultimately can also affect the nearby rectum and colon, leading to radiation proctitis and painful defecation. So these are real treatments. They have real downsides and real harms. And the problem with prostate cancer screening is we just find so many more men to have prostate cancer than will 
ever be expected to die from it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the definition of prostate cancer and other diseases. Is it maybe that the definition of disease is not accurate? You're saying that they could have the disease but not die from it. So really, is prostate cancer a problem? Yeah, well, you're, you're getting to the heart of the issue. What What is prostate cancer that matters? And, and I can generalize that to the question, what is cancer that matters? And I think uh, all physicians sort of need to remember what our patients hear when they hear the word cancer. They hear what's actually in my uh, Stedman's dictionary, which is a tumor, the natural course of which is fatal. And of course, that's what everybody hears. And that's the definition I think we all sort of associate with cancer. If you don't do something about it, people invariably die from it. But of course, there's another definition. And our operational definition is dependent on the pathologist. And, and their, their definition depends on what individual cells looks like, look like and what their architecture is, you know, where there's signs of the invasion of surrounding tissues. Now, these two definitions may lead to very different groups of people being told they have the disease. This really wasn't a problem when we handed pathologists tumors that you could hold in your hand that surgeons had removed, you know, large masses. The difference between the two definitions wasn't particularly relevant. But as we move into looking for really early forms of cancer, all of a sudden there does become a real relevant difference between these definitions. The clinical definition of cancer is a lethal, uh, invariably lethal disease that metastasizes and the pathologic definition, which is based on the appearance of individual cells. And pathologists themselves, to their credit, have recognized this uh, issue and, in fact, have sort of studied the reservoir of subclinical cancer in autopsy studies. And these are studies where men or women, in the case of breast cancer, or both in the case of thyroid cancer, are studied at autopsy, people who have died from some other cause, to see what the reservoir of undetected cancer is. And it's pretty substantial, particularly in prostate cancer classic autopsy study done in the city of Detroit shows that once men is over age 60, over half have pathologic evidence of prostate cancer. Somewhat surprisingly, even men in their 20s, about 10% have evidence of prostate cancer. So that's a huge reservoir of disease. Uh, That means that as you look for early forms of disease, you can find a whole lot more than will ever be relevant to an individual. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. H. Gilbert Welch, Professor of Medicine and Community and Family Medicine at Dartmouth Medical School. We're discussing the effects of early screening and diagnosis of disease. Now, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about cholesterol screening. There's a recent Jupiter study or justification for the use of statins in primary prevention, an intervention trial evaluating rosuvastatin. And in this study, different screening tests rather than a total cholesterol level were used. They were treating for lower LDL levels than currently indicated and also followed high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. Now, do you have any, any thoughts on how these findings might affect primary care practice? Well, I think it's a little early to say how these will affect primary care practice. I think a couple things are worth noting. One, the criteria for giving people statins has expanded dramatically over the past 10 or 15 years. And in large part, that's because of very positive research showing that there are benefits to giving patients a statin. The Jupiter study is an unusual one in that it all of a sudden it changes the criteria from one of based on cholesterol to one that's based on C-reactive protein. Quite frankly, I'm a little uncomfortable simply because the lead author on that study also has a strong interest in the test, albeit a financial one, in the test. And I, I hope this is something we can pause a little bit and make sure that these findings are replicated elsewhere. But that said, I think it is, uh, having looked at it, it's a pretty impressive study. 
but one has to step back and realize that it required 17,000 patients to show this difference. So that tells you that the absolute risk differences are, are quite small. And some of your listeners who've actually looked at the study might even noted the New England Journal used a interesting device to their credit to sort of highlight that point. They did the event curve for the individual patients running from zero to 100%, and then they had to enlarge those sections to actually show you the difference. If you look on a graph between zero and 100%, you really can't see the differences between the two groups. It's only when you enlarge them that you can actually begin to see the differences. So the, the absolute differences here are small. And I think this is one of the things that's happening as we're moving to earlier and earlier and more and more subtle forms of I don't even want to call them disease, more subtle abnormalities and asking the question of whether we should treat them. There's a strong economic incentive to do so. Whether there's a strong incentive on the part of the patients is something only patients can decide when they see exactly how big the benefit is. Now, you touched a little bit about third parties having an economic interest in the early detection and treatment. Have you found that your research has attracted any type of backlash since you've been warning about the downsides of, of too much screening and diagnosis? I think backlash is a little too strong a word. I think there are strong interests, though, in early detection, and, and the most obvious one are the pharmaceutical companies who are looking for larger markets. And the easiest way to get a larger market is to define a larger portion of the population to be ill or abnormal. And that's true for things like uh, diabetes care, hypertension, high cholesterol, or uh, osteoporosis. Here, the problem is that that just as you get into a lower-risk population, your absolute benefits become uh, much smaller. But it's not just the pharmaceutical companies. Medical centers, including academic medical centers, have some financial interest in recruiting patients. And going to the well population, offering free screenings is one way to recruit new patients. Whether it's the right way to do it or not is a, is a different question. But I think we all need to acknowledge that there are powerful economic forces that are promoting uh, early detection. Now, in one of the essays that you wrote for the New York Times, you mentioned that over the last couple of years in the most recent um, presidential campaign, the candidates have spent a lot of time talking about how their plans would emphasize and cover preventive medicine, that including health promotion, but also maybe annual checkups and screening. So with the new administration, do you see any opportunities to to do a better job with screening than is currently being done right now? Well, let me just first step back and make sure everybody in the audience is clear on the distinction between health promotion activities and early detection activities, because they both get lumped under this idea of prevention. I have absolutely no problem with health promotion activities. These are the ones I like to think of as what my grandmother would have told me, you know, don't smoke, exercise, get plenty of sleep, eat well. Those are very important things, and to their credit, both Senator McCain and and now President-elect Obama articulated the importance of of those health promotion activities. However, they both also advocated the early detection activities, and I think that's much more of a double-edged sword and one that requires a little bit more nuanced uh, view. Many people see early detection as a kind of cure-all, something that will simultaneously uh, reduce health care costs and improve population health. The first point that it will reduce cost, I think, is laughable, quite quite frankly, because these early detection strategies always identify so many additional patients, they almost always are, we should expect them to actually uh, cost more money. That's the reason uh, pharmaceutical companies and medical centers have been doing them. 
So I don't think we can hope that these kind of early detection efforts will actually reduce health care costs. That said, we may still want to do them if they really have substantial benefit. And that's the place I'm really interested in, is to what extent do they have a benefit and are we adequately measuring their downsides? And I think with the example of prostate cancer screening, you've got a situation where I I think, honestly, from what we know now, the downsides are greater than the upsides. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. H. Gilbert Welch. We've been discussing the effects of early screening and diagnosis of disease. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website, ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.